All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. Thanks for showing up on this Wednesday. I might want to grab the door. It's kind of loud. <laughs> so tonight what we're going to be talking about is uh, it's going to be an introduction to Christian biographies. We're starting a series on Christian biographies, and next week is going to be the first installment. I think it's George Whitfield is who we're covering next week, so it's going to be uh, through at least the beginning part of January, uh, covering significant Christian figures in a uh, biographical way. But uh, before we start tonight, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we could gather together to worship you through your word, uh, through community and fellowship. I pray that uh, you'd give me the words to speak, that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law, and that all that I do uh, would honor and glorify you. I pray that you would cast aside any distractions uh, that we might be facing and going through, and that uh, your presence would be here with us, and you would sanctify us by your spirit and the truth. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I really have two goals for this first, uh, this first introduction here. I want to to convey an importance as to why you should be interested in Christian biographies, as to why you should be reading them, and kind of whet your appetite for what is to come. So if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a, is a very interesting book. Uh, the, the author is unknown to us. Uh, it's most likely either Paul Barnabas or Apollos, but uh, the author does not identify himself. We're not quite sure who actually wrote the book, but we do know that uh, whoever he was, he was associated very closely with the disciples in, in chapter 2. Um, you can see how he, he speaks of them as close uh, companions. And so the book itself is very anchored in this uh, confessional apostolic teaching uh, especially uh, since we've been reading about the significance of, of the faith and how, it, how the teachings brings about these confessions that the church as a whole uh, clings to throughout the centuries. The audience here that, that the author is writing to, um, they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, they have a, a knowledge of Abraham and Moses. They know of, of Sinai and, and the giving of the Torah. Um, they're intimately familiar with the tabernacle and, and the, the priesthood uh, and, and the wilderness uh, narrative in the Old Testament. And so the primary audience that the author is writing to in the book of Hebrews is uh, Jewish Christians. But of course, even though that's the primary audience, as the Word of God, it's written for our benefit and our edification as well. Now, during the time of the writing, uh, the believers were under threat of persecution. So the book was written most likely prior to A.D. 70, uh, which, which was the time of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. So that hasn't happened yet. But they were under threat of persecution. They could sense that, uh, you know, they could feel not just with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but also the Roman government uh, that they lived in. There was this kind of impending persecution that they were most likely going to face. They did eventually face that. And 
the writer is very concerned for the people that they might abandon the faith because persecution brings temptation to slip away, to go into hiding, to run away, to deny Christ, even as we read of Peter doing. Uh, persecution also brings a lot of suffering with it. So the writer here is very concerned that when this persecution happens, the Christians are going to be suffering, and therefore they need uh, a word of exhortation. They need some kind of encouragement uh, that they might not abandon the faith, that they might endure, that they might persevere, that they might stand firm in the teaching that they've received. So the overall structure of the book he gives us a few verses here by way of introduction, but then the book really has four main sections to it. Uh, the first section really is chapters 1 and 2, and what he, he begins to unfold is he elevates Christ as supreme. And so in each of these four sections, he's going to compare Jesus to some significant person or, or group or event or institution that the people were familiar with in the Old Testament. So chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is compared to the angels in the Torah. Chapters 3 and 4, he's compared to Moses in the Promised Land. Chapters 5 and through 7, he's compared to priests and Melchizedek. And chapters 8 through 10, uh, Jesus is compared with the sacrifices and the covenant. Now the main purpose through all of this, again, is to exalt Christ as supreme as the remedy for persecution, suffering, and temptation. So the author of Hebrews wants the readers to remain faithful in spite of the persecution and the suffering and the temptation. And so therefore, at the end of each of these four sections, there's a warning, and the warning is, is in the form of something not to abandon Christ, not to abandon the faith. So we're not going to cover each of the main sections. We're not going to go through the whole the book of uh, Hebrews in detail. But I do want to take a moment and go through the first few verses of the book because it becomes important later as we move into the significance of Christian biography. So let's take a look at verse 1 here. The writer says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the author immediately sets up here a contrast between what has gone before, on the one hand, and then the present revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So you have what and who has gone before, and then you have this, this, this present. In these last days, uh, something new has come. And he says, in many times and in many ways, what, what are those many times and what are those many ways? Notice here that the author, he doesn't spell out what those are. He doesn't, he doesn't say exactly what those times and ways are. And the reason, again, here is because he assumes that his readers already know these things. He assumes that his readers here are already familiar with the events and the, the people and the places in the Old Testament. So he doesn't need to rehearse that in his introduction. So the author is saying here, having considered all the ways that God has worked, that you know about with his people in the past, something better is now here. And so he presupposes 
this, this familiarity with God's dealings with his people in the past centuries. And, and he goes on to say that uh, Jesus is superior to all the previous ways that God has revealed himself. In these last days, the last days signifies a, a final authoritative revelation. And God used to do this, but now he has done this. And so the better revelation has come in the person of the Son of God. When we think about God revealing himself, I want you to consider the significance of what it means for someone to reveal themselves. What, what does God have to do in order to make himself known, in order to reveal himself? Carl F.H. Henry, in his six-volume work, uh, God, Revelation, and Authority, has 15 theses on divine revelation. But the first one of these, he, he says, revelation is a divinely initiated activity, God's free communication, by which he alone turns his personal privacy into a deliberate disclosure of his reality. You see, when God decides to reveal himself, he gives up his right to divine privacy. God had all the prerogatives to keep his own nature to himself. He didn't owe creatures one single word of revelation of who he is and what he's like, what he desires, what he opposes, but yet he freely chose to make himself known. Without the revelation of God, all of divinity would be sealed up in a closed book. No one would be able to pierce into the nature of God, not even Google. No amount of spiritual incantations or meditation, even by the most sincere or pious monk in the history of the world, could glimpse the nature of God were not God to reveal himself. You know, 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So when God reveals himself, it's a glorious day. So why is there this contrast here? In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. The revelation through the prophets and the revelation through his Son. What's, what's so significant about God speaking and revealing in these last days through the Son? Well, the prophets speak for God, but the Son speaks as God. The prophets mediate between man and God, but the Son is God incarnate. You see, the significance of God's revelation by the Son follows in verse 3. He anticipates what you might ask. Verse 3, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, because God's a trinity, that is a unity of essence shared by three persons who relate to one another in perfect harmony, God the Son is able to reveal God the Father as an exact image. The, the biblical metaphor is as rays of light to the sun or as the imprint of a signet ring on a wax seal. There's no, there's no distortion, there's no 
diminution of the revelation that the Son gives of the Father. In other words, if you want to see God, then look to the Son. Now, that's easy to say, look to the Son, but the real question is, well, how do I do that? I mean, isn't Jesus risen and ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father God Almighty from whence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead? We went over that. So how do I look to the Son when I can't see him? Well, we see through the eyes of faith. We live by faith and not by sight. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, as Romans 10, 17 says. So when we read the Bible, we read it as the words of God. And we read it, second, with a view toward Christ. Reading it with a view toward Christ is what the Hebrew author here does as he relates all of the important facets of Jewish life to Christ, the Messiah, and he demonstrates Christ as supreme over those. So, for example, over angels. According to Jewish tradition from Deuteronomy 33:2, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, uh, Jewish tradition has it that it was actually through angels that God mediated his word to Moses. But Jesus as the creator, is the creator of angels. Jesus is supreme over angels. And the author at the end of that section warns that if Israel was supposed to pay attention to the commandments that Moses had that he got from Mount Sinai through these angels, how much more should they listen and obey to the words of Jesus? Christ is supreme, the author says, even over Moses. Jesus is superior to Moses, who was the leader of God's people. And Moses was responsible, you remember, for the construction of the tabernacle. But Jesus himself tabernacled among us. And his kingdom isn't located to a tent or to a temple like under the administration of Moses. Rather, the kingdom of Christ is of going to eventually cover the entire earth. There will be a new creation, and he reigns as supreme over the entire creation. And so, again, another warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, and the people's rebellion prohibited them from dwelling in the promised land with all peace and blessing, then how much more should we follow Christ so that we will not be prohibited from entering this new creation? Third, Christ is supreme over the Levitical priests. The priests, you remember, offered sacrifices for the people, but the priests also had to offer sacrifices for themselves because even the high priest himself was a sinner. So he had to sacrifice for his own sin. So there was something missing here. Something more was needed. Something wasn't complete. But Jesus didn't have any sin, and so he didn't need to make any sacrifice for himself. His sacrifice was completely other-oriented. Additionally, Jesus wasn't even of Aaron's line. The, the priests under the administration of Moses had to be in the, the physical um, descendants of Aaron. But Jesus, as the author of Hebrews says, comes from the priestly line of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is significant because he preceded the giving of the whole Mosaic law. And because he came before the law and Christ encompasses that entire span, he's indicating that Christ is superior to that law that was given. 
The warning here to reject Jesus is to reject the way to be reconciled to God because that's what the priests were doing in their sacrifices. They were trying to reconcile people to God in the sense that they would prevent God's holy wrath from consuming the people. And fourth, over sacrifices. Jesus is supreme over sacrifices. Uh, The author goes into the sacrificial system explaining that sacrifices had to be performed continually. This, well, there, were, there were yearly patterns and, and sacrifices that had to be done in specific seasons, and they were repeated. But Jesus was sacrificed once for all. So the warning here, do not reject the offer of forgiveness through Jesus that's actually effectual, the once for all. And so the Hebrews here are exhorted to follow this supreme revelation of God, this Jesus who was crucified for our transgressions and raised to glory, that we might become the righteousness of God. So if Jesus is supreme, then we should follow him. Now notice that I said should. We should follow Jesus, but it's not that easy. We should care for the poor and the needy. We, we should speak well of others. We should get along with our spouses. We should guard what enters the eyes. We should, but we need help. We're still sinners. We're still fallen. We need encouragement. We need exhortation. And remember here, so the author's elevating Christ, but, but he's writing a sermon. This is essentially a sermon for the people in letter form, and he is trying to encourage them in their suffering and their impending persecution and warn them not to fall away. So he he demonstrates, yes, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is supreme. That's the fact. That's, That's the proposition. That's the teaching. That's the doctrinal truth. But then the writer needs to do more. He needs to apply the truth to the people. He needs he needs the truth to impact And so he begins to to give a couple of commands in in chapter 10, verse 22. He says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Draw near. Hold fast. But how? How can we do this? Well, the very next verse, he says, Let us consider how. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. And then he takes a brief aside and and comes back again to chapter 11. And chapter 11 is famously known as the the Hall of Faith, and he rehearses here the Old Testament uh, saints, uh, Abraham and and so forth, uh, as examples of people who uh, have demonstrated great faith in the midst of opposition. So Jesus is superior, yes, but how do I remain faithful in love and good works? Chapter 11. Listen to the way John Piper comments on chapter 11 here. He says, Hebrews 11 is a divine mandate to read Christian biography, 
the unmistakable implication of the chapter is that if we hear about the faith of our forefathers and mothers, we will lay aside every weight and sin and run with perseverance the the race that is set before us. That's chapter 12, verse 1. If we ask the author, how shall we stir one another up to love and good works? His answer would be, through encouragement from the living and the dead. So I want you to see the progression here. Chapters 1 through 10, Jesus is supreme. That's the propositional information. This we affirm. This we assent to. Chapter 11, but how does that help me now? Lord, I believe you reign supreme, but help my unbelief. Lord, I know you're the author of life, but I'm suffering here and now. Lord, I know that you're the alpha and the omega, but I'm in the middle. I need help, Lord. I need encouragement. And so chapter 11 is recounting the biographies of faithful Christians that stir us up for love and good works. They, they develop and encourage us in our faith. The Puritan pastor, uh, William Bates, wrote this, Precepts instruct us what things are our duty, but examples assure us that they are possible. When we see men like ourselves who are united to frail flesh and in the same condition with us, to command their passions, to overcome the most glorious and glittering temptations, we are encouraged in our spiritual warfare. See, the author of Hebrews, he first gave us the precepts. Jesus is superior. Follow him, the command. But then he gives us the illustrations that encourage us along the way. The illustrations of of faithful believers who have gone before us. I'm not going to recount all the examples that he gives because you can read it for yourself in chapter 11. But I want to move on to taking a look at the result of that consideration, which begins to appear in chapter 12. In chapter 12, the writer here begins, Therefore, so having just recounted the faithful, that is the encouragement for the principle, the doctrine, the obedience. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... He means here, since, since we are a part of this, uh, this structure, this whole history that God has sovereignly worked out of faithful men who have come before us and who are present now and who will continue, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the faithful that we should be considering, the argument here, it, it, it expands from, from Christ to others, and to us. In, uh, in chapter 13, verse 7, the author here, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes in verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And in Philippians 3.17, Paul even goes further, and he says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and fix your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
So you see the pattern. This is Jesus, and he's awesome. Follow him. But see how they did it, and don't give up. Christ, others, us. We can follow the example of Christ, and we can follow the example of others. All three. So Christian biographies allow us to consider the others. There's the focus here on the, the others that we might imitate their example because in their example, they're imitating Christ. So as others imitate Christ and we imitate the others, it all flows, flows up to Christ. So ways in which considering the lives of the faithful impact our Christian walk. I've got 10 of these. The first one is follow an example. So Christian biographies give us examples of the living and the dead, and they challenge our faith. They, they show us how others have struggled with the same issues that we struggle with. They encourage us to stand firm in the faith. They, they show us that we're not alone. You know, one of the greatest remedies for depression that I've seen in people is when, when, and, and when people struggle with issues of sin is when they can get together in a community where all the members of that community are struggling with that issue. Have you ever thought about why there is such a thing as AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and these other groups that get together? It's because if you thought that you were the only person that struggled with a particular issue, that is a very hopeless, despairing situation. But when you realize you're not alone and there are other people that struggle with the same thing that you do and you can get together with that group and learn from one another and how did you deal with this temptation and how did you, what scriptures did you turn to? You know, it can seem like an insurmountable obstacle, but when we approach it in community with others, we can learn better how to handle it. We feel it's a, it's a sense of hope that we have, especially when we see how faithful believers have overcome a particular temptation or overcome a particular uh, situation or a particular event of suffering. Look and see, then, how great men of the past dealt with temptation. How did they overcome? How did they fail? How did they give in? What was it that got them through? What scriptures did they turn to? Did they suffer well? Did they reject God in their suffering, or did they hold him up as supreme? Sarah Edwards, uh, who's the wife of Jonathan Edwards, after Jonathan died uh, prematurely from a smallpox vaccination, um, she wrote a letter to her daughter, and she said this, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. See, when you read something like that, and you're dealing with the death of a loved one, you realize that people of the past had a strong sense of God's sovereignty in their situation. They had a strong sense of there's a reason for this 
to happen. God is with me. God will take care of me, and he will see me through. And so you can see from, from Christian biographies how people have lived well. You can see how they've died well, how they have remained faithful under threat of persecution, how they've stayed doctrinally pure when the encroachment of heresy cast itself upon the church. You could also see where they got it wrong. How did they fail? What can you learn to avoid the same mistakes that they made? What was the pattern of temptation that they eventually succumbed to? So with Christian biographies, you can follow their examples. Number two, Christian biographies teach us that we need to be an example. It's not just a matter of, yes, I've got all these good examples, but each one of us in here is an example for someone else. Just as you look to others for a challenge and encouragement, you need to surround yourself uh, by others when you're struggling and be that other for someone else in their struggle. Not neglecting to meet together, as we just read. Share our struggles with one another. Bear one another's burdens, as Christ says. You know, you, you, you want your team there with you. You, you want to be there for someone else. You, you want to be the one to challenge. You want to be the one to encourage. You're all writing your, your own biography. I mean, God is, is superintending it over it, but you're, you're living it out right now. As much as you take from someone else's life, you need to give back to others. So both following and being example demonstrates why we need the whole body of Christ. This, this tendency in a lot of Christian circles to, to have the idea of, well, I just need me and my Bible. I don't really need the community of the church. I believe in the Bible. I believe in the Christ of the Bible. And <clears throat> I'm not so much concerned with with community, that just doesn't work. Because if you take the Bible as authoritative, the Bible calls you to community. So if you say, it's just, I'm just going to, you know, be by myself on a deserted island with the Bible, you're being unfaithful to the Bible because the Bible calls you to be in community. It calls you to consider examples. Consider both Christ, Christ and others. Third, Christian biographies also show us something of how God works. Have you ever noticed how when God accomplishes things in the universe, he almost always uses means to accomplish those ends? So, for example, when God planted a garden in Eden that it might be cultivated to cover the earth, God could have done that himself. I mean, Jesus was walking in the midst of the cool of the day. He is the... Uh, the original gardener, he could have expanded the garden to cover the earth, but instead, he made a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and he told them, you multiply, fill the earth, and you keep the garden and tend to it. He made it their responsibility to take the garden and, and fill the earth. Or when God flooded the earth, you know, he could have built the ark himself and handed it to Noah and said, here's an ark, get in it and you'll be safe. But he didn't do that. He said, hey, Noah, come here. I've got a long list of instructions and many, many hours of, of work for you to do. Build your own ark. 
Or when the people of God went to the promised land, God could have wiped out all of the enemies and all of those, uh, the Hittites and the Amorites and, and all the rest. But instead, he said, no, Israel, you're going to go in and you're going to fight. You know, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he could have just manifested the food and fed the people. But what did he tell his disciples? He said, you give them something to eat. You see, so, so when God works, he, he utilizes people as means to accomplish his ends. When he carries out his plans in history, he, he does it through the instrumentation of men and women. And so God's providence in human history is in large measure through God's work, through people, through men and women. And so in this series, we get into Christian biographies, you're going to learn how God established theological clarity through men like John Owen and St. Augustine. You'll see how, how men preached the word of God with power and fervency and, and saw great revivals across the, across the nation and the men like George Whitfield and, and Charles Spurgeon. You'll see the birth of the modern missions movement through people like Adoniram Judson and, and Lottie Moon. You see, reading through Christian biographies, it gives us a, a glimpse of how God works his purposes in the world through, through people. Fourth, reading Christian biographies challenges your work ethic and tendency to fall into uh, embracing mediocrity. When you read the countless hours that some men put into praying and studying, it can't but encourage you to devote yourself more to the things of God. John Calvin uh, preached twice on Sunday and every day of alternate weeks. And in the midst of all of that, he performed an average of 30 weddings a year. That's a, it's a wedding every other week. Jonathan Edwards got up at 4 in the morning and would spend 13 hours a day in his study, and some say he would eat five-minute meals, and not only would he eat five-minute meals to get back to his study, but one of the things he studied was the meals so that he can ensure that his diet was to maximize his mental acuity for his study. All the while having 11 children, by the way. Uh, there, there's a famous book taken from much of Jonathan's, uh, Jonathan Edwards' wife, uh, her journal, called Marriage to a Difficult Man. <laughs> and, see, and see, you know, wives, it, your husband's not the only difficult one that, that has ever had to been dealt with. Uh, even on such things as marriage, biographies can have a lot to teach us about the way that the, the faithful have lived in the past. Uh, Martin Luther on prayer. You know, this, this quote uh, hasn't been found in his writings, but Charles Spurgeon used it, so I'm going to say it. And that is uh, Martin Luther, when it came to prayer, he would say, I have so much to do today that if I didn't spend at least three hours in prayer, there's no way I would get it all done. And so you, you read these, and, and you're just... You're encouraged and you're, you're motivated to have a strong work ethic. Number five, Christian biography ties you into the bigger story of the church throughout history. So have you ever noticed that in, in, in today's society, there's kind of a big business building up about discovering your roots and your family history? You've probably seen commercials on TV about these companies that you can pay and they will do all the research for you, and they'll figure out who all your ancestors were and, and where you came from and, and the places that they'd lived. 
Well, Christians, we have a family heritage as well. Uh, do you know where you came from? You know, one of, my, one of my professors one time, he gave me a sheet, and he had traced uh, his, his theological heritage. So essentially from him to his professor and that professor's professor, like physically, not like he read a book and considered the guy who wrote the book his teacher. This is physically the instructor. He traced himself all the way back to John Calvin. And since I sat in his class, I can trace myself to John Calvin physically through the line of teaching. And you sitting here in this class, because I am teaching you, can trace your theological heritage physically back to John Calvin. If you want to copy that, let me know, and I'll try to figure out where I put it. <laughs> Six biographies also keep you humble in thinking that your way uh, is the only way that God works. You know, we, we tend, especially in, in Reformed circles, we like to, dry, to draw these party lines sometimes on hot-button issues that, that don't really matter, and we're quick to label these disagreements as heresy when, when they're really much less significant. Um, and we like to think our brand is, is better than everyone else's. And, you know, it's kind of, well, how can God possibly use these other people over here because they're just, you know, one way or the other. But reading Christian biographies kind of opens up uh, the sense that, that God works through all kinds of faithful believers and, and various denominational backgrounds. You know, you think of the great revivalist preacher, John Wesley. Well, he was originally an Anglican, a member of the Church of England, and he's the uh, founder of the Methodist denomination. Or what about his brother? His brother, Charles Wesley, is one of the greatest hymn writers that the church has ever had. He wrote, And can it be, Christ the Lord is risen today. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. You think of uh, Martin Luther, founder of the Lutheran Church, but responsible for the beginnings of the Reformation as he nailed the, uh, his protestations there, 95 Theses on a Door at Wittenberg. And so the story of Christianity is much bigger than this church or that church or one denomination or the other. Christian biographies cut across these, these uh, denominational lines. They cut across generational lines as well. And so... Reading Christian biographies gives you a view of the forest for the trees. Number seven, biographies also help us to contemplate awareness of God's work in others, not just in heroes, but in all Christians. That's you. That's me. When you read a great biography and, and you reflect on the fact that the same God who did that is the same God alive in you. The same God who inspired Horatio Spofford to write the song It Is Well after losing his four daughters on a sinking ship is the same God who dwells in you. The same God who gave Luther courage before the Holy Roman Empire to say, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, is the same God who is active in your life. Eight, biographies help you to put into practice, thinking on these things. What does the scripture say? Think about such things, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is good. They're food for the soul. Number nine, biographies help you to discern what your gifting might be by revealing the gifts that others have been given. 
they, they might awaken a desire for preaching or for missionary activity or for skill in a particular area that you didn't even know you had a desire for. And they can help you find your passion, help you cultivate it. Now there's a caution here, an imitation, because God is not looking for you to try to become someone else other than being conformed to the image of Christ. You're not to become who Martin Luther was. You're not to become who George Whitfield is. God created you uniquely. He created them uniquely for a certain time, for a certain place. But we can imitate them in their strengths, and we can learn from their weaknesses. So you can't be someone else, but you may be able to cultivate desires and be encouraged and imitate. Ten biographies help to illustrate the teaching portions of Scripture. You know, they, they, they make the abstract more concrete. They, they take the principles and they help them to become more emotionally relatable. You know, Jesus spoke a lot in parables and he used stories to engage his audience. The principle was there, but the principle is illustrated in a narrative form, in a, in a narrative with a story. And so biographies, they illustrate the Christian faith as it plays out in, in individual lives. C.S. Lewis points out that while reason is the natural organ of truth, imagination is the organ of meaning. And so for all the good that biographies bring, we've covered 10 benefits. We have yet to discuss their ultimate purpose. And this is the purpose that the author of Hebrews most desires to draw our attention to. So back in chapter 12, after having pointed to Christ the Supreme in the, over the past revelation of God, uh, he, he encourages struggling believers with biographies of the past. But he returns in chapter 12. You remember we read uh, the first part. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, what comes next is important because it sets up the ultimate purpose for, for why you should read Christian biographies. He says, let us also, so also as in we're imitating these believers of the past, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Well, which one is it? Do we look to others in biographies, or do we look to Christ? Yes. It's both, because here, they're, they're tied together. Ultimately, what a biography does is that it showcases the glory of God by putting on display trophies of the grace of God in Christ. When you read a biography, what you're doing is what you're, you're, you're seeing what God has done. You're seeing God's faithfulness, his strength, his protection, his comfort. You're seeing the, the, the sports illustrated of Christianity. Our minds should be drawn from the trophy to the Christ who's won it. We marvel at historical heroes as, as they showcase and point to the person and work of Christ. 
you know, you can look at, look at what God did in John Newton's life and look at what God did through Corey Ten Boom. Look at how the grace of God transformed his life or what God was able to accomplish through her faithfulness to his word. Every Christian biography is the story of God's work in a person's life, an individual life. You can't, can't just read a biography and come away with some interesting historical facts that you can then go and press your friends with. You can't also simply read a biography and, and come up with a, a new set of principles to imitate. You're not just reading examples so that you can go say, oh, I'll just be like this person and that person. Rather, you have to train yourself when you read Christian biographies to, to, to look past the subject of the biography. And you have to be able to, to, to see the hand of God who wrote the story of the person's life. Christians all bear the marks of the grace of God. We need to, to learn to herald that grace as we see it in others. And we also need to learn to herald that grace as we see it in ourselves. God's movement in history assures us of God's movement now. Biographies spur us to worship seeing the great work that God has done through others' lives. So here's the challenge. Do you know more about Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt than Augustine and Aquinas? Do you know more about your your favorite quarterback and wide receiver than you know about William Carey and Adoniram Judson? You know, for younger people in the room, do you know more about your favorite Fortnite character than Luther and Calvin? You know, Howard Hendricks uh, once said, you'll be leaving here soon. Ten years from now, there will be a great difference between each of you in your personal lives and ministries. Some will have failed miserably. Others will be doing very well. Two factors will have the greatest impact on where you find yourself in ten years the books you read, and the friends you make. Guard them both very carefully. And in biography, book and friend mesh together. Hebrews 13, 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Why does, he, why does he say, remember your leaders? And then he says, but Jesus Christ is the same today and yesterday and forever. Why, what's the connection between consider the outcome of their way of life, and then all of a sudden you just have this topic shift. Consider them, oh, but yeah, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, it's because... As you look to the outcome of their life, what you should be seeing is the work of Christ in their life. And because Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, he is the one that empowers you to imitate principles that you find in their lives. So biographies help us to see the revelation of God through human history. They point to Christ the author and perfecter of our faith. So, so just remember, as you come and, and you learn of, of these great men of faith uh, who have gone before us, 
the same Christ that, that was at work in them is the same Christ who dwells in you. Let's pray. Thank you for this evening, for the chance.